Well, uh, when you're trying to answer the question, who am I, I think for most of us, we, we, we go backwards to try and answer that here and now in the present. So by that I mean, we will say something about our family of origin, perhaps, if someone asks us, so who, you know, who we are and where we've come from. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a boy from the Newcastle and the Hunter Valley who moved to Tasmania when he was 10 years old. We talk about nationalities. I've got a, uh, an English grandparent and a multi-generational uh, uh, Australian um, set of grandparents. I'll talk about work that I've done. I've been working for a church. I was a youth pastor. I used to work at Coles. I went to university. Talk about our current job, uh, what we're doing now, ministering at this church. We talk about our family. I'm a father. I've got a couple of kids, a lovely wife. Uh, we talk about the places we've lived. I'm on the sunny side and it took me a long time to realise that because most of my life was on the dreary old western shore. Uh, and uh, we do all sorts of things, don't we, to try and explain to someone who we are and it's almost exclusively based on our experiences to date. You don't tend to describe yourself by virtue of what you hope you might be one day. I don't say to people, I'm a millionaire with multiple houses who's funded a cure for cancer. Uh, I mean, I'm sure God's got that plan for me, but I just can't use that yet to, 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 to describe my identity. And in fact, if I think about it uh, enough, uh, we actually like to use the future perhaps to try and plan the kind of person we might like to be, but there's nothing certain or sure about that at all, is there? I can't tell you the number of times I've imagined myself in December as a competent 80 kilogram weighing guitar player, uh, but I, I've never quite made it there uh, year after year. But actually, if we could see the future and if we did know what was to come, it would be quite helpful in guiding our current behaviour and helping us understand who we are. And of course, that's the wonderful thing about God in his wisdom. He knows this. And so the Bible actually does give us a whole stack of information about the, the, the sure and certain future that God has for each of us, which shapes who we are and how we're to live here and now. And it's really important for us as we think about our identity. You'll remember this series is just trying to lay some of the big foundation blocks for uh, thinking about answering that question, who am I? And we started off a few weeks ago now thinking about uh, the opening chapter of the Bible, which tells us some great truths about our identity, that God made us in his image, and that because of that, we were made for relationship with him, and we were made to uh, care for and rule over his, his world under his rule and reign. We're created for a relationship with God, we're created to have dominion over this world and we're created to do that in right relationship with God. But of course it only takes a couple of pages for human beings to stuff it all up. And so we saw in the second week that though we have uh, such great purpose and we never lose that, we are afflicted by sin, we're ruined by sin. We're made in God's image, we're made for relationship with him, we're made to rule over the earth, but everything's out of whack. Genesis 3 has happened, 
Adam and Eve have sinned, and now everyone and everything lives under the curse. We remain people made in the image of God with capacity for relationship with him, but our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with others are broken. And instead of ruling the world under God, we rule the world the way we want to, selfishly. And, of course, the world also groans under the curse of sin. We were in Genesis 3. And even exercising dominion over the world has now become a hard thing. Part of the curse of sin is that doing what was meant to be a joy is now a struggle. Work is hard. Everything is ruined by sin. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the world. And then we saw how that's not how God intends to leave things. He hasn't left us in our horrible state affairs. He hasn't left us alone. He hasn't said, well, you broke it, you fix it. Rather, he's seen that we're in a mess. He's seen that we've rebelled against him. He's seen that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be our life saviour, to rescue us from our sin. We saw last week in Romans 5 uh, about how Jesus has done this. You see, uh, Romans 5 verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were completely stuck There was nothing we could do to overcome our sin, our shame, our guilt, all that stood before us and in front of us and in the way of our relationship with God. And yet in the mess of all of that, God in his great love for us sent Jesus to pay the price, to restore the relationship and to enable us to live into the kind of things that God created us for, to live in right relationship with him to have restored relationships with one another and to steward the earth well. But that's not the full picture, is it? Because there's a future as well. And God hasn't just sent his son Jesus to save us for today. He saved us for eternity. He saved us for a better future. And this week we're thinking about our resurrection Resurrection hope. Now, when we think about the resurrection or the future, sorry, we, we, let me start that again. When we think about our future hope, I think we tend to think a lot in terms of going to heaven. That's our sort of go-to uh, thinking about the future. When I die, I'm going to die and go to heaven. And I, I don't know what you imagine. I don't know what you think about when you think about what is that going to be like for you. And uh, suffice to say that there is some sort of uh, distinction between what happens to us now when we pass away and what will happen when Jesus returns. And that's what I'm talking about now. What's going to happen to us at the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead on that day? What is going to happen to all of us? And what the Bible speaks about on that last day is not that we all get to go and live a disembodied 
uh, future, but actually we all get to go and live an embodied one. The, the Bible speaks about resurrection hope, not just for Jesus, but for all of us. It, it starts with Jesus, but it flows on to the rest of us. And in our reading today in 1 Corinthians, that's what you see, the, the flow. Jesus first, then us. This is our resurrection hope. This is our future, an embodied future with Jesus living in perfect uh, harmony with God in a perfect world. So the bit we didn't read uh, to save you some time in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the importance of Christ's resurrection. I'll just read it to you. If you've got your Bibles open, you can have a look back at the start. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3. I received what I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Paul's saying here that Christ's resurrection gives us hope because it means that his death was like no other death. It paid the price for our sins and so God was able to vindicate Christ by raising him from the dead. But also, Jesus' resurrection shows us something of what our future will be like. Our hope for ourselves and for all we know and love who've died trusting Jesus is a resurrection hope. Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 15, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When it comes to our faith, we know that Christ is a a, a taste of what is to come. He's a guarantee of what is to come for all of us. And when we rise as Christ has risen, uh, we will get what Paul describes as a spiritual body. And uh, I just want to spend a little bit of time unpacking this. Paul, we see, uses the analogy of a seed to describe the relationship between this current bit of flesh that I'm walking around in and the bit of flesh that I'm going to walk around in in the future. Let's have a little look at how he describes it. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or of something else. What I think Paul's trying to say here is that there's continuity and discontinuity between what we have now and what we will have in the future. Both physical realities with similarities and differences, just as when you plant a seed and it grows into a wheat kernel of wheat, there's similarities and differences. They're connected, they're related, but they're different as well. And so that's what it's going to be like for us when we get our new bodies. Paul goes on in verse 42, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. 
we're going to get a major upgrade when we get resurrected. If there is a natural body, Paul says, there is also a spiritual body. And so we see this with Jesus uh, in some way, don't we? The first fruits of our resurrection, the, the first guy who's had this happen, who's gone from um, uh, natural body to spiritual body, to use Paul's language. Jesus has a natural body that dies and he has a real physical resurrection into a real physical body, but it's different. Jesus is both recognisable when he's resurrected and unrecognisable. It takes people a while to figure it out, doesn't it? If you think of the stories that we read in the Gospels of his appearances, he can walk along the road and have a full-on conversation with people who know him really well, and it takes them a little while to figure out that they're hanging out with Jesus. Jesus has got scars from the cross, so there's, there, there's correlation there to his old physical body, but he can seemingly come and go from rooms that people are in. He's got a phys- real physical body, he can eat, he, we, we read stories of him eating time and time again, and yet he seems to be able to get places real fast. Spiritual doesn't mean not physical, it simply means a physical body ready for eternity. Both the natural body Paul describes and the spiritual body are physical realities. Because Paul's describing all of this in the context of what? Resurrection hope. Resurrected bodies, spiritual bodies, are bodies that cannot die, that are no longer under the curse, that are free from sin and suffering and from death, and that can never, ever be taken from us, no matter what. And so, Paul says, knowing, knowing that you're going to get a resurrection body, a perfect body, a body that was sown in weakness but is raised in power, a body that is sown in dishonour but is raised in glory, a body that is sown perishable but raised imperishable, knowing that that's the kind of body that awaits you. You can stand firm for God and be the kind of person he calls you to be in a world that is perishing. You can live for God no matter what happens. Paul could even go to Ephesus and beat up lions or something, he seems to tell us in this reading, uh, because he wasn't afraid because he knew he had this awesome new body coming his way. Though being a Christian is hard, and though it may cost us everything, even death doesn't equal defeat, for it's just the planting of eternity. The sting of death is sin, Paul says in uh, Romans 15:56, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. God calls us to serve him as recipients of his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ 
knowing that we are guaranteed the perfect body for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And of course it pays, I think, to read the last uh, couple of chapters of Revelation that give again a, a, a metaphorical picture of what it's going to be like when God comes and lives with us on earth and we uh, are brought into this new reality together. What we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that our resurrection hope is not just in Christ, but it's that what has happened to Christ will happen to us too. And our hope for resurrection is actually what ought to be the engine room of our faith. Jesus was raised from the dead, and this is both a vindication for him and a demonstration of what is to come for us. And getting this straight helps us think about who we are and how we should live. And so I just want to briefly touch on that uh, before we finish off. How is it that knowing we have this resurrection hope how does it help us figure out who we are and how we should live? Well, I think, first of all, it gives us the right set of expectations for the world in which we live. It helps us remember that this world is not all there is to it. It's not the end of the story. The good news is that the world and all its failings will come to an end and we will have an eternity in perfection to look forward to. We'll get new bodies to live in a new heaven and a new earth. And that's good news. You know, there's a whole bunch of people out there who are very anxious and worried about the end of the world. They look around and they see the world getting hotter and they see catastrophe after catastrophe and they think... We've got to do something to stop this, and maybe we should try and do something to stop it. But at the end of the day, whether or not we can, I don't know. But they're right. They've got the, they do have the diagnosis right. This world is on borrowed time. It's going to end. Nothing will stop the return of Christ the last day where he will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. We could go to net zero emissions, and Jesus would still come back and the world would still be over. You should be very anxious about the end of the world if you're not in Christ. The solution is not government power or cleaner power stations. Not that those are not good things to try and do as we steward the earth under God. But our hope is in resurrection that one day we will receive a resurrection body ready for a renewed life in a restored world. Our world desperately needs resurrection hope. And I hope if you understand where the, 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 ter the trajectory we're on, the telos, to use a technical term, then that helps you live right now. It helps you orientate yourself. It helps you not be too stressed out. The other thing I think getting our future right helps us uh, live with our imperfections now that we have. That is, we are not perfect, 
and we know the ways our bodies fail us and our minds, but these will not be with us forever. It doesn't mean we don't try and improve, but we can take great comfort that it's not the whole story. The truth is, when you're thinking about who you are and who you want to be, you will never be all that you want to be. Oh, that's depressing. Jeez, I didn't come to church, Chris, to hear that today. Well, it's true. You'll never be all that you want to be by yourself in this life. doesn't matter how much dieting you do, how many self-help books you read, or how many atomic habits you adopt. You're never going to be the perfect version of you until the Lord Jesus comes and if you've put your faith and trust in him you receive your resurrection body at the last day to live in eternity with him when there's no more sin stuffing everything up all the time. So it's good now to submit yourself to Jesus and to allow him to start the work of transformation but your end goal is the last day, the resurrection day. We get ready now but we know perfection comes as a great gift from God. Paul says it like this as he concludes his whole section on resurrection. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, verse 58, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. As we work for God, we set ourselves up for God's future. Knowing that Jesus has beaten sin and is coming again, and that when he does, we will be transformed, helps us to persevere and do all that God has called us to do in the here and now, even if it's hard or costly. So who am I? That's what we've been toying with over the last few uh, weeks. And I thought to finish, it'd be worth kind of trying to encapsulate everything I've tried to touch on in the last uh, month in a little sort of finishing part. So who am I? How would you answer that question? I've tried to suggest taking a theological framework of reflection, ruined, uh, rescued and resurrected uh, uh, is a good way of trying to think about who you are as you fit into God's story of all humanity. So let me draw that together. Who am I? I am made in God's image, but broken by sin, yet I've been saved by Jesus to live for him forever. Who am I? I'm a follower of Jesus who knows that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I can have the relationship with God that I was created for and can serve the world by living for God and seeking to bring his kingdom to bear in the places he has put me. Who am I? I'm God's servant who works to please God in all I do eagerly awaiting the last day when I'll be given my new spiritual body that will enable me to serve God perfectly forever in the perfect new heavens and new earth. That's who I am. Who are you? Amen. Amen.